This past Friday night, I came across an article written by a current NBA player, Landry Fields. He writes the following. If you struggle to believe God loves you, and God just keeps bringing trials in your life, don't panic. They're more related than you realize. I hobbled on one crutch to grip my cell phone from my back pocket. I was a starter for the New York Knicks and then the Toronto Raptors, and then I got injured, and then injured again, and then injured again. An elbow, a hand, a hip, an unholy trinity that slowly, progressively, and painfully dragged away my ability to play basketball for several seasons. My dream, my deepest desire, my identity were all suddenly in danger. It felt like life had been written in dry erase marker, and God came and smudged what had been clear before. Once a star basketball player in Madison Square Garden, and now through three years of unplanned, unwanted physical issues in my house, straining just to check my phone. He goes on, I've never struggled to believe in God, but I've lived a lot of my life as a person who believes in God but lives as if he doesn't exist. I already had a gospel of my own, the promise that love and wealth of the world's to give to the popular and gifted. I didn't need to trust God because I already trusted another God the NBA. Three years ago, Christ slowly started to change all of that. God gave me a gift through multiple season-ending injuries. God gifted me faith through my sufferings. That's how God works. He never wastes a drop of pain. And Fields concludes his article, suffering has made the gospel real to me, and God will use suffering to make the gospel real to you too. If you're going through something painful or difficult, It doesn't mean that God isn't paying attention or he doesn't care. It means God wants to win you to true faith in him, a better hope in his salvation and deep humility and joy in his grace. The question I have for us today is how how many of us let our circumstances inform our understanding of God? I think this is something we struggle with far more often than we realize. Maybe things are going well for you. Perhaps... You're hitting your numbers at work, or you just came off a great review with your boss, or you're expecting or experiencing the birth of a healthy baby. It can be easy to know God loves us when things are going good. But what about when things seem to go wrong? What about when that sale falls through, or the review is negative and you know it's because of your coworker who didn't do his job? What about when the cancer is spreading, or you can't get pregnant or lose the baby that you've longed for. What do these things say about God's love? Functionally, we too often let our our circumstances determine how we view God's love, rather than letting God's love determine how we view our circumstances. The big idea we're going to be getting at this morning is that we experience God's love. We experience God's love by believing who God is. We experience God's love not by looking at our circumstances, but by looking to Him and knowing who He is. To know God is to know God's love for us. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ is where we see His love most prominently displayed. Because God loves us, He wants us to see Him and to know Him. And my hope today is that instead of letting the reality of our circumstances inform how we understand who God is, the reality of who God is will inform how we understand our circumstances. John Piper has said this, don't measure the love of God for you by how much health and wealth and comfort he brings into your life. 
If that were the measure of God's love, then he hated the Apostle Paul. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you. How much of himself he gives you to know and enjoy. Because God loves us, John, the disciple, writes these 21 chapters so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. It's in the glorious revealing of Christ, the God-man, the Word became flesh, that we can find life and joy, even in what seem to be our darkest days. This morning we're going to be looking at John 11, verses 1 through 54, and the title of this morning's message is The Love of God in the Face of Death. We're going to look at God's love for us in in four ways. First, we're going to see God's love in His waiting. Second, we'll see God's love in His nature. Third, we'll see God's love in His power. And fourth, we'll see God's love in His sovereignty. John 11 is the culminating point of the first half of John. In this first half, it's often called the book of signs, and and John relays a series of miracles that Jesus performs to help us see something of his glory. And this, in John 11, is the climactic miracle of the first half of John. This is the miracle that ultimately sends Jesus to the cross. And throughout John, we've seen religious leaders and opposition arise, and, and angry mobs seek to stone him. Just last week, at the end of John 10, we saw how, how an angry mob arose to destroy him, to stone him. And Jesus retreats with his disciples across the journey, Jordan, about a one-day journey from Jerusalem. And then John brings our attention to this little village called Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, about two miles away. John introduces us to a family that are in the midst of their greatest suffering. And he does this so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's a book that we hold in our hand. This is God's word for us today. Let's read together. John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, 
but also to gather into the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Bow your heads with me. Father, we come to you together to sit under your word. Thank you that you speak to us today through your word, and that in your words we find life. Pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of who you are, that we would see something of your glory, of your love, of your power as we meditate on this passage together. Lord, help me to be of benefit to these that are gathered and help us to see more of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've got to apologize now because everything from here on out is... We're going downhill. But thanks be to God that we have His Word that speaks to us. Number one, God's love in His waiting. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. At the outset of this passage, John wants his readers to know one thing. Now, one thing is Jesus loved this family. We see this first in verse 2, how John uses Mary's extravagant devotion as a means to give context for the special relationship. We, have, we don't even get to that story until John 12, but John makes mention of it right here. It's because the readers would have already known about it, and it highlights something of the uniqueness of the relationship. And then in verse 3, the sisters send for Jesus, and they don't describe their brother as Lazarus, who is ill. Lazarus is ill. Come, come see him. They just describe him as he whom you love. And then once again in John, in John 11, verse 5, John highlights it once again. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's an interesting thing and something I don't often think about. I don't think we often think about. But Jesus had friends. Jesus had close friends. And it wasn't just 12 friends that Jesus had. Jesus was a real man who walked a real world doing everyday things and hanging out with real people. And then when trouble comes knocking at the door of Martha and Mary, when hope seemed to be fast fading for Lazarus, they think, if only Jesus was here, he'd be able to help. Imagine with me what those days must have been like in this household in Bethany. They're there, their brothers laid out, likely in excruciating pain from this illness. Life is flowing out of his body. This illness is ravaging and destroying him. So they've tried everything. They've tried every medication. They've tried every doctor. Every means of care they've exhausted. But they still have hope. That's in a person, Jesus. Martha and Mary have an incredible friend. And they'd seen this friend heal countless people. They knew how Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man. They remembered Jesus healing the official's son just with a word. If only Jesus could come. He's healed all these strangers. Surely, surely he would heal their brother whom he loved. So they sent for him. They knew Jesus was a little ways off. They knew he just left Jerusalem because of the danger there. And he was about a day's journey away. It would take at least two days before they would even see him. Message has to travel there. Jesus has to come. And Lazarus was fading but they still had hope. 
Not long after these messengers had been sent, Lazarus takes his last breath. Devastation and grief set in for Martha and Mary. How? Why why did this happen? In their sadness and grief, they waited, holding on to a sliver of hope. In those days, it was just common knowledge that the soul of a dead body hovered over that body for three days. There were stories that Jesus had raised dead people to life before. Perhaps he could do it again. But he'd have to hurry. They still had hope. Martha in her mourning sought to distract herself. She liked to keep busy. She would go out scanning the horizon. Where? Where is Jesus? He should have been here by now. The second day comes and goes. And then the third day passes. Lazarus is gone. All hope for Martha and Mary, all hope is lost. But when Jesus receives this news, we're met by something entirely unexpected. When this message reaches Jesus, that Lazarus, the one whom he loves, is ill, look what Jesus says. Verse 4, this illness does not lead to death, meaning its end and purpose is not death. This illness is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus effectively usurps the narrative going on now and inserts himself as the main character. This illness, all that's going on, it's not about Lazarus. It's not even about you, Martha and Mary. It's about me. This is all meant to point to me. In verse 5, John, emphasizing the love that Jesus has for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and goes on in verse 6, so. And that so really is, is like a therefore. So because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, therefore, when Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This doesn't make any sense. When we hear of loved ones suffering, we rush to their side. We will drop everything. It's not, hey, should I come? It's, I'm there. And I will drop everything to be there. But Jesus waits. How is this love? Love will go a thousand miles for those who are hurting. But Jesus here redefines love for us. The love that Jesus has for those who are His is a love that sees beyond the momentary. It sees beyond the momentary. The love of God is never late. The love of God is never early. The love of God, it's always on time. And if you have put your hope in Him, His love for you, it doesn't change. His love for you is the same in your darkest moment as it was that hour you first believe. He is the unchanging one. We may think in our circumstances we know what we want. We think we know what we need. We might think we know the answer to whatever problems we face. But He, He is the one who knows what we need. And His timing is perfect. 
Because of Jesus' love for this family, he waits two more days. But there's more here. After waiting two days, Jesus tells the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples know the danger that is there. They know the angry mobs and the opposition that awaits them. They fear for their lives. But Jesus tells them, there's really nothing to fear. As long as it's still day, we won't stumble. And then Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus has died. That must have been a crazy moment for them. This news had just reached them, Lazarus is sick. Jesus is telling them, Lazarus has died. And then look at verse 15 here. But for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Not only did Jesus delay his timing for his own glory, not only did Jesus wait these two days because he loved Martha and Mary, Jesus waits these two days out of care and love for his disciples. He wants them to know his love by seeing who, re- who he really is. I love this quote from H.B. Charles. He says, Jesus delayed his coming because he wanted his disciples to know that he has just as much power at the graveyard as he has in the sick room. Jesus has authority at the doctor's office in the funeral home. He is in control in the emergency room and in the cemetery. It's in knowing the reality of who God is that we experience his love for us. Jesus is never early. Jesus is never late. Jesus is always right on time, even in the face of death. And here we see God love by waiting. Second, we see God's love in his nature in verses 17 through 36. Now back to Martha. We left her. She had been waiting and waiting for Jesus to come, but he didn't come. And then at long last, four days after burying Lazarus, someone runs into the house to tell Martha, Jesus is coming. And she feels a mixture of anger. Why wasn't he here? But then gratefulness, because he'd finally come. She longed to cry on her friend's shoulder. So she runs out to meet him. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she probably realizes how much this comes across as an accusation. Tries to take the edge off. But, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She expects sympathy and grief in this moment. But Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha pauses. And then she responds, yes, yes, I know about that. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But what Jesus says next for a moment brings everything into perspective for Martha. This future hope, the future resurrection, says he's in front of her right now. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He gives her hope for Lazarus. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he gives her hope. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? A flash of clarity lights up Martha's mind. Jesus is the point of all this. Jesus is the hope in all this. Martha's no longer consumed with what's 
right in front of her, the hand that's been dealt with her, but she's wrapped up in the nature of the one who's standing before her. In the midst of Martha's maddening tragedy, Jesus shows his love for her through his nature by showing her that he is God. So Martha speaks in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe, and these words should sound familiar to us, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is a remarkable declaration. Years of knowing Jesus, and she's finally seeing Jesus for who he really is. And peace washes over her in the midst of her grief as Jesus loves her in his deity. Then Jesus sends for Mary. When Mary approaches Jesus, she feels the exact way Martha felt. John uses the exact words that Martha uses. When Mary comes to where Jesus is and sees him, she falls at his feet. In verse 32, she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She has faith that he could heal. But Jesus doesn't respond to Mary the same way he responds to Martha. He gives Martha a promise in the midst of her grief, showing who he is as God. But to Mary, he gives her something of his humanity. He shows emotion, and ultimately through this, he shows her his love. And take note here, God is not cold and calculated in his dealings with Martha and Mary, and he's not cold and calculated in his dealings with us. God doesn't have a one-size-fits-all love for every situation. God meets us where we are. God knows exactly what we need. Because remember, God is not in the business of solving problems as we think he ought. God is in the business of showing us who he really is. God wants us to know him because it's here that we find life, not in our problems being solved. Look what Jesus says to Mary. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Mary and the mourners around her struggled to understand what was going on. What's going on with Jesus here? The Greek word that's used for for Jesus as he's deeply moved is most often used to refer to a, a horse angrily snorting. And when it's used in the context of people, it, it, it talks about anger and outrage. Jesus is outraged and indignant at what's taking place. He is, he is greatly troubled. So, why? Why is Jesus angry? Certainly Jesus is indignant at the effects of the fall around him. In one sense, he is angry at the hurt that is caused by this death and behind death, the destroyer himself. But Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus knows that he is there to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not outraged just at this. He's outraged because there's this gross disconnect between who he is who Martha and Mary say they, that he is, and who they actually believe that he is. Martha and Mary just espouses deep faith in a God who can heal. And Martha even confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Yet both 
Martha, as we will see, and Mary right here and right now, they're limited by their unbelief. They're unable to see beyond their current circumstances to the one working through all that they face. The sisters and these mourners around them are allowing their circumstances to shape the way they understand who God is. D.A. Carson writes, The men and women before him were grieving like pagans, like the rest of men who have no hope. Profound grief at such bereavement is natural enough, but grief that generates to despair, that pours out its loss as if there were no resurrection, is an implicit denial of that resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And then when Jesus is being brought to the tomb, John records a remarkable detail in verse 35. Jesus, Jesus wept. This points us to Christ's humanity. Jesus is God in the flesh. He experienced real emotion. Isaiah writes, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Christian, he's not unable to sympathize with you in your weakness. And Jesus here is not scoffing at the grief of those mourning. He weeps with them. But for the Christian, our grief in the face of death has a profound, a profound hope. The Christian's hope is not in our circumstances. The gifts of resurrection and life, they're not a miracle. They're in a person. Death is not the end for the Christian. The end is Jesus himself. He is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus here is outraged and grieved that these who are suffering, they're missing the point. The circumstances surrounding the death of Lazarus are not about this miraculous act to come. They're about the omnipotent, the all-powerful Jesus. Jesus here is revealing himself to the people gathered at Bethany out of his love for them. Because it's in beholding the one, the one who is the resurrection and the life, beholding the God-man, the Word became flesh, that we know God's love. We see his love for us when we see who he is. Third, we see God's love for us in his, in his power. God's love in his power. Verse 37 through 44. The mourners looking on, they seriously doubt the wisdom of Jesus in all this. Verse 37, they say, Could not he who healed the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once again, he's indignant. He's angry at the unbelief of those around him. Their God is too small. So Jesus makes his way to the tomb. The crowd gathers. And Jesus shockingly calls out in verse 39, take away the stone. But here, Martha intervenes. The last we saw Martha, she was confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But what she confesses with her mouth, she doesn't believe with her heart. For Jesus to be the Christ means that Jesus is the Messiah the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed prophet who speaks the words of God. Jesus is the anointed priest who makes a way to God. And he is the anointed king ruling over all as God. He is the long-awaited deliverer. 
He is the long-awaited deliverer who has come to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the perfect Adam. Jesus is the patient Moses. Jesus is the righteous David. Jesus, Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus, He's the Son of God. This means that Jesus, in His very essence, He is God. His nature is divine. He is equal with God because He is God. In Colossians 1, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in everything, He might be preeminent. For in Him, in Him, in this man, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When the galaxies were flung into space, He was there. When man took his first breath, He was there. When the flood came, wiping out all of humanity except Noah and his family, he was there. When the Israelites were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh and led through the wilderness by a cloud and a pillar of fire, he was there. When the kings of Israel rose and fall, when they were taken captive by the Babylonians, he was there. He is in all things divine and in all things righteous. He is the Son of of God. And now in this very moment, in this very moment we see God's glory breaking in this world, obliterating the hold of death on Lazarus, Mary doubts, Martha doubts. Lord, he has been dead four days. But Jesus reminds her in her doubts, don't you remember who I am? What this is all about. I, I am the resurrection and the life Look at verse 40. Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you, do you this morning believe this? Jesus works all things according to the one who sent him, God the Father. And here he takes a moment as the stone is rolled away to thank God and remind those gathered that he always works the will of the Father. This is not some sorcery or demonic incantation. This is according to the will of God. And then Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who died came out. The man who died came out. See the power of God. In one moment, a dead man lay lifeless in a tomb. No blood flowing through his veins. No air filling up his lungs. And his body had lain dormant for four days. Then in a moment, this dead, lifeless corpse hears a voice. Yes, the dead heard a voice. The blood flows. The man gasped for breath. Jesus spoke and the man obeyed. He had to come out. So Lazarus, he came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
When Lazarus was first buried, no one was thinking about mobility. No one was thinking about, all right, will he be able to move in this? No. They weren't thinking, hey, let's keep these linens loose just in case he has to hobble out of here. But no, imagine Lazarus here, face covered, wrapped up, trying to shuffle out towards the light. But see the care of Jesus. Yes, the point of all of this is the glory of Jesus, but he still cares for those he loves. A dead man has just shuffled out of his grave, and everyone is just standing there dumbfounded. But Jesus says to them, unbind him and let him go. Leon Morris writes, Jesus was never so carried away by the wonder of his miracles that he forgot the needs of the person. What a good, what a good shepherd we have in Jesus. Now we can't look at the powerful resurrection of Lazarus without noticing two things. First, how this relates to the resurrection of Jesus and then how it relates to our own future resurrection. First, in just a few months from the raising of Lazarus, Jesus himself is to be ensconced in a tomb. A stone will be rolled in front of it as his body lay lifeless behind it. But Jesus, he doesn't require anybody to call him out. Jesus doesn't require anybody to unbind him. He is the resurrection and life. And he leaves behind those linens that were wrapped around him. He leaves behind those linens never to need them again. John relays later, as him and Peter are racing the tomb, they peer inside. John writes in John 20, Then Simon Peter came, following John, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Jesus awoke from death and simply removed and folded up his grave clothes. This man was unlike any other. Marvel, marvel at his, his power and his glory. Second, let's look how Jesus, Lazarus' resurrection relates to us. First, it gives us a visit, vivid picture of our spiritual resurrection. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And then, it also gives us something of a preview of what is to come. As the dead are raised to life on that great and final day. God's love is manifested for us in his power. Seeing him for who he is gives us faith and hope in whatever we face. He is the one who once and for all defeated death. Jesus says to John, the same John in Revelation 1, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, He is the one who cures the sick and He heals the blind. He is the one who calms the storm and walks on water and feeds the multitude. He is the one who calls a dead man out of the grave. He is our God. He is the all-powerful one, and He has done all these things for His glory, that we might see Him, and we might know Him, and we might find life in Him. And finally, fourth, we see God's love and His sovereignty. This last section, verses 45 through 54. In the Gospel according to John, this miracle, more than any other, incites division. 
Either Jesus is God or he must die. Many who saw this divine act believe, but some have witnessed this powerful work of Christ and have run off to report to the Pharisees. Quickly, a council is convened and we're brought into the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was like the supreme court for the Jews. It was the, the ruling court made up of chief priests and Pharisees. They gather together and know they must do something. But why? Why must they do something? Well, they want to protect what they can control. They want to protect their little kingdom. They like the circumstances they find themselves in. And they don't want anything to change. They're quite content. Look at verse 47 and 48. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This group doesn't deny or dispute the actions of Jesus. He's healed a blind man. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. But these things don't bring these men to reevaluate how they view Jesus. No. They dig in their heels. Their fear is that Jesus will create such a stir in their little kingdom that the Romans will come in and stomp out their authority and destroy their temple. They were more enamored with their position, with their circumstances, with the status quo, than they were willing to consider that Jesus may be just who he says he is. But Jesus is who he says he is. More than that, he is sovereign over this very conversation that's taking place among those who oppose him. Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks openly and mocks those gathered, saying, you know nothing at all. And then he says in verse 50, look at this. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas is saying that it's far better for us just to kill him. Let's get rid of him. Otherwise, we all might be goners. Caiaphas had no idea how right he was. John explains in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. Caiaphas thought he was speaking in his own power, but God, God was speaking through him. The plan that Caiaphas put forth to snuff out the life of Jesus was the very plan of God to save you and to save me. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against the Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That's what we see happening right here. Jesus knew what giving the life to Lazarus would ultimately mean. Jesus knew of the tension that already existed and that would reach fever pitch as a result of this audacious action. But he knew in God's sovereign will that this was the road that he came to walk. This was why Jesus was in this world. This was the road that he was ultimately meant to walk in order to be glorified. God chose to use the hatred of Christ's opposition to accomplish his saving work. Caiaphas had no idea how right he was when he said that it's better that one man should die. He was so right because it was in God, in his sovereign power, speaking through him, that he reveals that Christ came as our substitute. Oh, how much better is this for us? Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Peter writes, He himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. John takes it even further in verse 52. Not only did he die for this nation, but he died to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. He came that he might draw all men to himself. Jew and Gentile, American and Syrian, black and white, rich and poor. He came to gather them to himself because this God, this one true God, this God alone is worthy to be praised. Revelation 5, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Look at what happens at the conclusion of this. So from that day, verse 53, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus knew what was in front of him. The tension here is reaching a breaking point. He's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. These Jewish leaders thought these were their plans for their sake, but they had no idea how much bigger and how much better were the plans of the sovereign God. See, God's love for us in his sovereignty. Know the love love of God for us in the face of death as we know him for who he truly is. John Bloom writes this, Jesus had come to Bethany to destroy the devil's works. He had come to give death a taste of its coming final defeat. He had come to show that now was the time when the dead would hear the voice of the Son of God and those who heard would live. God uses this circumstance and God uses our circumstances to bring himself maximum glory. Because by bringing himself maximum glory, we experience the most joy, satisfaction, and we see him as he really is, the resurrection and the life. Now there is no doubt this morning that trouble is coming for you in one way or another. I've heard it said, whoever you are, trouble knows your address. And it will show up at your house sooner or later. Around 108 billion people have walked the face of the earth. And every one of them has faced trouble. But what a hope we have if we've trusted in Him. And this morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior and trusted in Jesus who came and took your place by suffering for you. You have an opportunity to experience Him as the resurrection and the life. Experience Him for who He is. Today can be a day of salvation for you. Turn to Him and trust in Him. Because when you see Him, when you see Him for who He is, you can experience His love in the face of every situation, even in the face of death. We experience God's love not by looking to our circumstances, but by looking to Him. We experience God's love by believing He is who He says He is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God who has come into this world. Because God loves us, He wants us to see Him. May we see His love and power and sovereignty, even in the midst of in the face of our greatest fears. 
C.J. Mahaney says this. I'll read this in closing. Death is the loser here, as well as him who has the power of death, the devil. Jesus isn't just angry at death and the effects of death. He acts. He demonstrates his authority over death, and this act of giving life to Lazarus will lead to his death. Jesus is deliberately precipitating his own death by raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' death would be no accident or tragedy. This was the purpose for which he came. He came to suffer death in our place as our substitute for sin. His death addresses our greatest enemy and our greatest fear, death. On the cross, the enemy of death is conquered when the Son of God dies in the place of sinners like you and me. Through his death and resurrection, death is defeated. Death no longer has the final say for the Christian. Death has been swallowed up in his victory. And this Jesus who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, this Jesus will one day wipe away every tear from the eyes of those who are his. Lord, we hope in you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for his husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Thanks be to God. Our benediction for this morning. From Revelation 1, verse 5 and 6. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.